there is very strong social pressure on Ukrainian migrants to kind of give the correct answer to say that they want to come back to Ukraine. You're listening to the Transformative Podcast brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. Welcome to the newest episode of the Transformative Podcast. My name is Daniel Jäcke and I'm a doctoral student at Rezet. With me is Olena Yermakova, who has spent the last couple of months with us here at the Institute. She's a doctoral student from the Jagiellonian University in Krakow. And today we're going to talk about her research on Ukrainian migration. At first, could you tell us a bit about your doctoral project and how it has changed over the past years? Hello, Daniel and everyone. It's good to be here. So the case study of my research is contemporary Ukrainian migration into Poland. Now, of course, the war has affected that a lot. There's been a, this tectonic shift in, in context that frames it. And the scale and the meaning of what Ukrainian migration is has changed entirely. So, for instance, nowadays, if you ask someone in Poland who is a refugee, the first thing they would say is probably a Ukrainian. And that was entirely different in 2018 when I started my project. My PhD is framed within this larger Horizon 2020-funded project on populism and the rise of liberal politics in Central Eastern Europe, which is why I have been looking at migration into Poland from this kind of populist lens. So I have been studying through the perceptions of migrants themselves, how the right-wing populist discourse kind of affects their experiences in the host country. But with the war, it changed and I kind of adjusted more to also look into the interactions with refugees and mutual perceptions. And what is the main method to answer your research questions? I collect interviews, have I structured interviews. For my PhD specifically, I've collected 42, I think, and I analyzed them mostly with thematic analysis, so very classic in that sense. In your research, you distinguish between so-called personal and impersonal motivations for Ukrainians to leave their country. Could you please elaborate on that for us? I talked about these personal and impersonal reasons, not so much as like the push factors of why people left in the first place, but for the reasons people give about their plans of returning to Ukraine or staying abroad. So what I noticed from, from speaking to people in my interviews was that very often the reasons that are given are very kind of abstract and impersonal, like corruption. And of course, there is no doubt that this is a factor which frames life in Ukraine. And it's, it's like a chain, a link in the chain of consequences, right, that create the conditions for your life, broadly speaking. But very often it does not have, you know, very kind of immediate direct application to your everyday existence. So for instance, you know, even when I'm talking to my sister, who is a 20-year-old student who fled the war, she says that she doesn't want to return to Ukraine because of corruption. Exactly. Now, this is like, there's other reasons given as well by people in general, but this is one that is very often repeated. And, you know, for my sister, I know for sure that she had no sort of immediate encounters with like high-level corruption in the country or so on, or none that I can think of. What I think this is, is that 
it is much more socially acceptable to give this in personal reasons rather than to give actual reasons or and um, these are not necessarily mutually exclusive that these are rationalizations. Now I'm here, I guess, a bit kind of psychological with my research, but so, you know, very often when it is not easy to admit publicly or to yourself that you want a certain thing or you took a certain decision, you kind of try to find these reasons which are more justifications for the choice already made rather than like primary intrinsic reasons. So I think this is what kind of corruption serves. But also as a... Because maybe I need to clarify this, that there is very strong social pressure on Ukrainian migrants to kind of give the correct answer, so to say, that they want to come back to Ukraine. Because back home, there's quite a lot of resentment towards Ukrainians who left. And there is a lot of fear in the society that they will not return. And because of that, the country will suffer demographic and economic problems um, because, yes, Ukrainian demographic prognosis look very bleak. So this creates this kind of pressure that migrants feel. And I think the perception is that if you give this abstract reasons, which have nothing to do with you, your choices and your actions can sort of be excused. If you just say something very directly, specifically personal applies to you like that, well, I found the new boyfriend abroad or a job that pays much better, then you could face quite some yeah. judgment. When you talk to Ukrainians, I wonder, isn't there also a third option that goes kind of beyond the dichotomy between um, staying or returning, like, yeah, trans-migration or uh, circular migration? Yes, Ukrainian migration has been before the war and is now quite complex. It's yeah, it's often circular migration or even more, I don't know how to call it, some sort of, you know, there's very complicated trajectories involved. And the situation is very dynamic. But I would say that in general, the sort of third option, that is the status quo rather than the future scenario. First of all, you cannot be in this limbo state forever, you know, it's, it's exhausting to say the least. But also there's very specific legal bureaucratic circumstances to be taken into account. So nowadays, Ukrainian can do this sort of complex mobility because it is allowed by the Temporary Protection Directive, which is the legal framework regulating Ukrainians, Ukrainian refugees in the EU. However, temporary protection is temporary. It will expire after three years. And after that, or probably even before that, being third country nationals in the EU was kind of quite limited rights, people will have to decide on these very concrete things like where do you apply for a residence permit, where do, you, where do you get registered, where do you pay your taxes, and so on. And these things you can not do in two countries or more for a long time. You mean that it's likely that Ukrainian refugees will have to, when the uh, temporary protection directive expires, to make a decision, an ultimate decision on... To, if to stay or to return? Yes. I mean, already even now, you know, like in Austria, if you leave for more than three months, by law, you lose your uh, protection. So, but nowadays, it's still kind of a bit more flexible, I feel. But but after the temporary protection expires, this may become a problem. Talking about Ukrainian refugees and their prospects of staying or returning, I would like to ask you a question about surveys. It seems to me that um, 
scientific surveys asking Ukrainians if they want to return or not um, play a prominent role in the media coverage on on Ukrainian refugees. And I wonder if you could share your professional opinion with us on these surveys. My professional opinion is, of course, heavily kind of um, influenced by the fact that I'm a qualitative researcher, so I'm a bit skeptical of, of uh, surveys as such, particularly on such sensitive topics. So, of course, I think all these surveys and figures that have been presented, they do give a good general indication. But I would be a bit suspicious of, you know, the exact numbers. I think that these surveys often lack nuance and complexity of and the sensitivity of the question at hand. Because when you ask someone yes or no, are you willing to return or not? This misses, for example, discussing whether people will to return under what conditions. What returning needs to them? Is it like long-term fully re returning or is it rather, again, circular migration, visiting family and such? This misses all their doubts that they have. And the most important thing, I think, is what I already mentioned, the social pressure. That because of the social pressure, people feel a need to answer a certain way rather than share their kind of honest doubts about it. And I will give you an anecdote. Um, once I was at, an, at a public event um, and one of the speakers was a Ukrainian refugee who no one asked her. She proactively said in her talk that she wants to, she dreams of returning to Ukraine. And because I'm very interested in these topics and at the time I was researching return refugees, um, of which there's already many, an estimated one third of all those who left after February 22. After the talk, I came to her and I asked her, when are you planning to return? Like, how did you make this decision? And she said, I want to return after my child graduates or after my child goes to university because I want my child to have a European standard diploma. And I said, well, that sounds, you know, great. Um, how old is your child? Is uh, he or she in high school? And she was like, oh, no, my child is in fifth grade, obviously. She's not planning to return until like a decade later, until which point life will be very different. So, um, and the conditions will be very different and so on. And these are the things that, yeah, surveys often miss out on, I think. What is in fact the government's stance on the refugees and the diaspora in general? I mean, is there an official diaspora policy in Ukraine? Well, so the position of Ukrainian government is that they want people to return. At the same time, again, this is not kind of concrete and specified. And for instance, this time last year, one of the vice prime ministers, Vereshchuk, was appealing to refugees abroad and saying, do not return until the end of winter. Because last winter, as you probably know, Ukraine has suffered massive electricity shortages due to opens and critical infrastructure by Russia. If all these millions of people return, the system would collapse. So yes, I think Ukrainian government has the idea, but it does not yet have any concrete policies towards it. And about diaspora in general. So when you ask a Ukrainian who is Ukrainian diaspora, they will probably tell you it's these old guys in Alberta, Canada, who had Ukrainian grandparents um, who, you know, migrated a hundred years ago. This is the image of Ukrainian diaspora. So mostly people talk about this like, way older migration waves into North America from like USSR uh, prosecutions. And I think what Ukrainians need to reckon with is that, you know, that reality has changed. It's 100 years later. And by now we have many more people 
refugees and labor migrants before them live in all over Europe and are also North America and other places. And we need to create a comprehensive strategy to engage them. Going back a bit further in time, when you started your research five years ago, did the government of Peter Poroshenko have an official opinion on the large number of Ukrainians leaving um, to work in countries like Poland or the Czech Republic? Or did that just become kind of urgent with the beginning of the full-scale invasion last year? There has always been discourse of brain drain, even way before Poroshenko, you know, it's been happening. And Ukraine has always been a country of emigration, uh, not emigration. Um, but I think it really became this urgent issue now after the full-scale war. And it has to do with this sort of perceived societal responsibility or something like that. It's interesting to observe how it changed because, you know, before the full-scale war, if a guy decides to migrate to Germany or some, something and shares this with you, you tell them, Atta boy, you've done well in life, you know, good for you, this is the way to go, nothing good will ever happen here and so on. This was like an achievement and it was, a, it was an achievement and it was viewed positively in the society, society mostly. Nowadays, it's completely different. Nowadays, especially for men, of course, well, that's a whole different story. But even for women, it is not viewed as an achievement it is viewed, or even as a necessity these days anymore. Nowadays, it's more viewed as some sort of, you know, betrayal, I guess, in, 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 in many ways. It, it's resented. Is there a governmental institution or a state body in Ukraine that is officially in charge of keeping in touch with the diaspora? Because in the case of Poland, there's a committee of the Senate of the Second Chamber of Parliament um, that is responsible for uh, looking after Poles or people of Polish origin living abroad. Or are the responsibilities in the case of Ukraine not so clear? To be honest, I'm not sure, not that I know of, of a specific body. Uh, I would guess that responsibilities are not clear because this is usually the case for the you know, Ukrainian government, that there is this like, overlap in competencies between different bodies and such. So yeah, I'm not sure, but may I ask you a question as well? Because um, so I research you know, contemporary migration into Poland and you research historic migration out of Poland. And I wonder if you noticed any parallels. Did Poles back in the 80s, experienced some of the same things? I would say yes and no. It depends very much on your perspective. I think in some ways it's comparable, but in others it's not. For example, the kind of most obvious difference is that despite all the economic and social hardship in Poland in the 1980s and of course the introduction of martial law, that went hand in hand with very harsh human rights abuses. Nevertheless, there was no war in Poland. There were, were no destructions on a scale in any way comparable to what is happening in Ukraine right now. Mm -hmm. I think that's a major difference. From that perspective, I would say the current situation is more comparable to um, yeah, you refugees leaving Yugoslavia in the 1990s. Of course, I clearly noticed parallels in, in some regards. For example, when it comes to Poland, for example, very vivid discussion on uh, between all the kind of involved actors about the questions, who is a refugee? Are the people leaving Poland in the 1980s, and are they really refugees? Mm -hmm. It was not only discussed in uh, the transit host societies like Austria, but also in 
among the Poles themselves. Interesting. Um, that's, I think, um, an almost ridiculous parallel to the um, present situation, is that, especially in the early 1980s, a lot of Poles left their country simply by driving with their own cars to Vienna. Mm -hmm. And when they came with their cars to Vienna, some Austrian says, okay, so they can't be really refugees, but because they come here by car. Oh, that, that's exactly what's happening right now, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what I noticed uh, two years ago mm -hmm. here uh, in Vienna too. And um, that, that kind of really struck me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an obvious um, tiny parallel. It's very interesting, these sort of like constructions and perceptions of vulnerability and who deserves help and who deserves to be a refugee. And it's interesting how for the host society, you know, it's so much easier to kind of help if you can feel superior to that person as you do that. Yeah, okay. if, they, if they don't drive a better car than you do to this thing. <laughs> Although um, I'm not an expert on cars, but I think um, when the Poles came here by car in the 1980s, I think it was not so much jealousy on the side of the Austrians, because at that time there was clearly a wealth difference in wealth between yeah. Austria and Poland and, and Polish cars were not really attractive I guess to Austrians but nevertheless it kind of it was not yeah conceivable to some Austrians that you can flee from your uh, home country by car because yeah. in their yeah, kind of imagination they had to come uh, on foot yeah. um, and so on and um, but it's all, all, yeah, it goes back even further because um, already in 68 and 69, a lot of uh, people have yeah, flight from Czechoslovakia. Mm -hmm. They also mostly came by car. Mm -hmm. In, However, in difference to the Hungarians in 56, who mostly really came uh, on foot to mm -hmm. Austria. Let me just say, um, yeah, thank you very much. I was talking to Olena Yermakova, and I very much enjoyed our talk about uh, Ukrainian migration over the past um, years. Thank you very much.